Today's episode is brought to you by Rootless Coffee Company. Rootless is a small batch roaster out of Flint, Michigan, making high-end coffee with bags designed by some of the comic industry's rising stars. Collaborating with artists, bands, brands, nonprofits, wrestlers, comedians, and more, Rootless is the punk rock gateway to craft coffee. Easy to understand and delicious roast options. Listeners get 20% off their order using the code HARDTIMES at checkout when you visit rootlesscoffee.com. Any size, any grind, any time. Break free from boring. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. I am coming to you from Orlando, Florida. My band Touche Amore is on tour with Thrice and Self-Defense Family. Currently, Thrice is, flay- is, uh, is playing. They're, they're playing uh, on the floor above me, so you probably hear maybe a little bit of bumping and... Uh, Maybe just the overall sound of a band playing, but this is what happens when you uh, are dumb enough to have a podcast and be in a band and try to think you can do both at the same time. Um, my guest today, Jake Bannon of Converge, they just put up a brand new song in support of the upcoming Blood Moon record, so I figured this was a perfect opportunity to get Jake on the show. Uh, we go deep, deep, deep back into into early uh, Jake Bannon days. We talk a lot about. Uh, his time in art school, as well as the genesis of Converge. It was a really awesome talk, and uh, it left a lot of room for him to come back and uh, pick up from where we left off. But before we get there, I want to talk about my friends at Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER. When you visit store.dscvrd.co, check them out. They're an incredible music, punk, hardcore magazine covering bands that don't get the attention they deserve. They really have their ear to the ground, and I respect them oh so much. So help them out and uh, give them a yearly subscription. I swear it's worth it. Um, What else is going on? Oh, if you subscribe to the show's Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, there is a bonus episode with Jake Bannon where subscribers were able to submit questions that you can hear him answer in that bonus episode. So yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jacob Bannon. Jake, it's nice to see you. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with me today. Nice to see you as well. Yeah, it's been a it's been a minute. I was even just trying to think of the last time I saw you. It's it's probably been at least at least two years, maybe three. When was the last time you got? Because we guys played the Regent on the last record. That was probably what at this point, like twenty eighteen or something. No idea, man. I know you're you're kind of a 
as a person, you you definitely keep track of that sort of thing. Um, and I do just the opposite. <laughs> you know, where like you catalog shows and catalog, you know, like that activity. I just, I, I just, I just don't. Yeah, it's never, it's never been a thing. You, uh, not an archivist ever, which is interesting because no, of- I'm an archivist. No, I'm, I'm an archivist for other things. I'm an archivist for. Um, you know, for art and finished projects, things like that. Um, and I have a, quite an extensive, um, quite an extensive library of that sort of thing. Um, so like, even if a, a, a former client reaches out maybe 15 years later, I can probably pull a file within like a half hour. Wow. Uh, or less, as long as it's not corrupted. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I've been, I'm always meticulous about that. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, in terms of my own personal self and, uh, and my own work, I don't like, I don't keep copies of anything. I don't keep, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't keep, keep media or anything like that or shirts, whatever. Sure. Sure. Um, so it's funny when I was, uh, when I was just doing, I mean, obviously we've known each other for a long time, but it's always interesting when I start doing like a little bit of research to, to realize certain things, maybe I didn't realize. And I didn't know you were like actually, uh, born and raised in, uh, in Beverly, which is obviously where the death wish offices. Not true. Hmm. Not, well, your Wikipedia is a damn liar then. So where, where were you yeah, actually why, born? Well, what, uh, why, why would you trust Wikipedia? <laughs> I don't because usually it's a usually it's like a half decent. I mean, kids cheat with it on their homework, so you know you you think it's a little uh, a little uh, correct. Right. Hold on. Let me just turn off these notifications on this machine. See what's going to happen. We Appreciate go. it. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Um, anyway, um, it's a typical day. I'm wearing many hats. Um, yeah. Just one hat, but you know. Right. Get the idea. Uh, where, where I was, where was I born? I was, yeah. I was born in Stoughton, Massachusetts. Okay. Which is uh, on the South shore of, um, of Massachusetts uh, near Easton and Brockton, that kind of basic area. I didn't, I wasn't raised there uh, per se. Um, my family had a, like a small, I guess a small house in, in Randolph that they, they rented for, I think the first year or so of my life. And then I spent most of my time in Andover, Massachusetts and uh, spending the weekends at my father's, which was sort of in a variety of places uh, over, uh, over my, my, my young lifetime. Got it. Got it. Um, and when you were young, like what was the first time you felt like you were connecting with music like something that maybe felt like it was yours I always connected with music you know and I always just as an adolescent you know doing doing whatever listening to anything from like you know like David Bowie and Queen and then like early metal and stuff like that um my brother was really into um into like golden era heavy metal okay so this this is like you know when I was a kid. So this is say I was like eight, nine years old, stuff like that. So I would get into, this is like 84, 85 kind of time. And so I was introduced to a lot of that stuff as it was happening. Um, and as it was sort of taking root in, you know, in the music world. And I'm really fortunate for that. 
at least I, I think I am from people who don't give a shit about that genre or just, you know, aggressive music or hard music in general, really don't care about that or punk. But, you know, for me, that was like a, that was a gateway into a variety of things. That's how I um, was introduced to things like Iron Maiden and Motorhead and around like you know, 1983, 1984, stuff like that. And uh, over time, as I got into sort of skateboarding and BMX culture, music kind of goes hand in hand with that. You know, you have friends on the periphery that get you into things and, you know, hand you, hand you things. Um, I don't think it, I never, I don't think I necessarily uh, identified it as mine or having any sort of, I guess any, any sort of drive to, to play it or to, to write it until I discovered punk rock you know because more more often than not it was everything else felt like a fantasy it felt bigger than life you know when I would see a record or would see something on television or on a, like a VHS tape or whatever that was a whole nother world you know that was not I was I was not partaking in that I wasn't a creator per se you know at that time I might have been a kid doodling and doing random shit but it wasn't I didn't take it seriously until I found punk rock and punk rock above all things for me really was a, um, I guess a introduction into, into being able to create your own world and do your own thing and use your voice and your voice was just as valid as the ones that you heard on records and saw on television, things like that. So I felt quite empowered by that. Um, you know, more, more notifications. Here we go. <laughs> Try to turn them off as many places as I can. You're uh, fine. Uh, um, did but yeah, I, you know, it worked out for me. Right. Uh, so I'm assuming this was like an older brother that was kind of showing you the way. Yeah, six years older. Not really showing me in the way because um, there's quite an age gap there. Um, we, I don't, I don't think, we're not friends now and we, yeah, we've only been friends a few times in my life and um, I think age gap has something to do with that at least partially to do with that sure um what was uh do you remember what the first like concert you went to was was that something that uh so obviously it's not like something that he would have taken you to as a as a younger brother or anything like that oh, I, I feel like let's see first thing that I, I know I went and saw David Bowie um and i think that was like that was like a, my first like big concert you know but i was definitely exposed to live music before then that was definitely the first time where like i saw like almost like tailgating for for something um he went to a lot of things when i was a kid and so you know he had the you know the three-quarter length bark at the moon shirts and the shadow of the devil shirts and stuff like that and like, um, and like the maiden stuff that was like, oh, wow, it's like the coolest stuff ever. Um, so I sort of like lived vicariously through that for a long time. I feel like I'm, there, there's one instance where I, I believe I went and picked him up from a concert or something with my, with my father. I'm not sure what it was. Yeah. Um, and I remember we, I just remember like echoing in the Boston Garden, you know, and being like this loud, abrasive thing, but it could have been any one of those bands at the time. Got it. Got it. Um, I know you play uh, a couple instruments through, through like a lot of the um, different bands that you've done, like Warrior Wounds and stuff like that. Did you start 
ever, I don't know if I know this, but like, did you ever play guitar early on or like play bass early on or anything like that? Or did that come later? Sure. Yeah. I was a bass player before anything. I, I, um, I started Converge as the bass player of Converge. Didn't uh, know that. Yeah. And there was no, nobody wanted to sing, including me still don't, <laughs> but I'm there. Um, you know, and, uh, um, but I, honestly, the, the only reason why I, front a band is because nobody else would do it and I, ne I never had drive to do it I have never had really much of an interest to do it um, I was writing early converge songs and then we needed a guitarist that was a little more um, technically competent and proficient than any of us were in terms of playing and that's how we met um, that's how we met Kurt actually so okay uh, that was kind of like that gateway that's how we we sort of found each other in high school for sure okay got it um yeah what uh i guess i'm trying to, so we could we could, i wanted to like bounce back and forth between obviously music and art um because those are actually two major aspects in your life um so we can go kind of to where we started with music so um when you were young were you interested in art at an early age or did that come also a little later I was definitely interested in it for sure. My father was a visual artist and then kind of became more of a business person um, involved in graphic design and artwork, but I was surrounded by it and exposed to it that way a bit. Um, and I was always, you know, just like most kids, just encouraged to make art. And as somebody who's still pretty shy person, I don't think I'm that outgoing of a person, um, I tend to express myself through visual art where I'm sort of focusing my all my all the little things that are going on psychologically and sort of turn them into you know, a, a visual version of that um, and I was doing that at an early age I think most most creative folks probably have a similar path in that, in that regard was there ever like a moment that you saw something that inspired you to be like oh like that's the kind of thing that I would like to try to do. And did you, were you exploring like different kind of mediums even as a kid to sort of figure out your way? Not really. I think I just used whatever was around that I could use. I mean, and I'm talking about like pencil, you know, or like, uh, you know, a pen or whatever, um, random pieces of paper. Uh, that was just kind of like the way I, I was, I just, and I still am. I just use whatever I have around. I, mean, I know you can't really see too much back there, but like I'm working on like a bunch of projects right now and I just use what I have. And my goal is to basically like, I might have a color palette, for example, now as an, as an adult, but really I just want to get through this bin of paint and then I'll go <laughs> buy another bin of paint. Yeah. <laughs> For for listeners at home, Jake Jake just showed me a mail crate uh, illegally being used uh, with a <laughs> being full of spray paint cans. Use. I didn't read the rest of it. For me, it just says warning. Oh, so this is not for private use. Not for private use. Yeah. Well, it's I guess I'm using publicly. I'm not. I'm not hiding where I'm using it. But, well, in in that regard, yes, I'm misusing some of those. Always have. They're an incredible incredible tool. Um, yeah. But yeah, so like I just use what I have pretty much. Um, and you, and like I discover what works and what doesn't. Um, I think I was probably inspired 
as a just as an individual by the punk rock community and seeing people just make make stuff out of nothing you know um they had a voice they had something that they wanted to say and they would just whether it be using a photocopier um whether it be using a pen whether it be using a marker whatever they were just making it work you know whether it was you know a collage of crazy imagery or um like something like i don't know like early napalm death records or something like that or like virtually all you know 80s and, and 90s low budget uh, aggressive music you know everyone's just kind of finding source material and doing the best they can with what they have because uh, you know nobody could really make something wholly from scratch we just couldn't you know you just figure stuff out um, and that's that's kind of like how I developed a, a process and a style um, I, I look at what I do now as a visual artist more as a sort of an amalgamation of those things um, kind of like taking collage and mixed media work and bringing it almost like punk flyer style, but bringing it to more of a, a fine art level of, um, of, you know, visual aesthetic. That makes sense. Did, uh, did you ever have any um, interest in doing like photography? Did you ever go down that lane ever in your life? I did a photo, photo minor. Um, I've got a camera around here somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I, I did a photo minor in, uh, for, for a bit in school um, and was taking pictures before that. And I actually, I, just like every other punk rock person, I love taking photos at shows when I was a kid. But then um, I had my, my camera bag stolen in a show and I lost everything. And I didn't have any money to, to buy anything else. So I actually remember finding the, the, uh, one of the dudes that stole it that night in a uh, convenience store and I asked him about it and he's you know he's just a little piece of shit and it's just you know he just basically said I don't know what you're talking about whatever and I was like all right go fuck yourself and yeah I found out a couple of years later that they in fact they did steal it it was them um and I knew in my heart at the time yeah um, but it sucked because you know I didn't you know, I didn't have any money to go buy another camera right my, my camera at that point I think was like a a hand-me-down, um, you know, awesome, like 35 millimeter that just, I knew how to use in and out at the time, you know, and like, and I think, I think it took, I was a teenager then, so it probably took like seven, seven years and eight years until I could afford to buy something else for art school, you know. Right. Damn. Um, well, that's too bad. Uh, when you got, when you ended up getting a camera back again, did you, find yourself wanting to do different things with it were you still doing live photography or i would mess around with live photography just to kind of get my feet wet again um but i was in school um i was in art school and so i was doing a lot of mainly assignments stuff like that i learned a lot there um there weren't that many um there were a few mu like music related folks there um like a, a my old friend mark who actually took the video stills that are on the petitioning empty sky record those are all video stills he took uh, of people on the on the MBTA or whatever. Uh, he was in the band Arise. He was the bass player of that band. I think he also played in a band called Nevertheless for a, a little while. Okay, yeah. You probably have uh, one of those records. On a, on the shelf. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of Arise. I, I've heard of the other one. Oh, yeah. Arise, incredible. You're, yeah. you're that's a it's a deep cut of metallic hardcore here. They're probably one of the best bands that 
that no one's ever heard of from here at this point in time, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I have like a, in my, I have like a, a very like photographic memory and I, I, I can picture exactly their, one of the covers. I don't know if it was like a seven inch maybe, or, or remember it was a record, but just like the logo at the top. That's what I have like in the back of my, in the yeah, in my they, head. They, I believe they had a couple of records that popped up. Um, yeah. After the fact, like, I think at posthumously as they, they say, right. Okay. Um, but they, they actually had an album that was never released that I think Trey probably still has on cassette. That was like a daily jammer for most people around here for a long time. It was just okay. ahead of its time. Uh, sure. Like they were the, if there was a brother and sister band to overcast when overcast were at their height of, of being active, yeah. they, they were the other one. Got it. Got it. Um, so yeah, let's jump, <clears throat> let's jump yeah. back to, uh, to music stuff for a sec. So when, um, so actually, I don't know. I don't know if I know this for sure. Was Converge the first band that you ever did, or did you have any bands before that that you were playing bass in? Same band, the whole time. The whole time. It's crazy. I mean, I remember when when you guys were all celebrating the twenty year, but now you're at what thirty one years. Thirty one. Yeah. It's, it's most of your life. It's a yeah. Well, it's a weird thing. Like I, you know, back then when I started a band, I looked at all of these these people, these musicians, these creative folks. And in my mind, they were timeless and they were giving themselves to their art and their music fully, wholly. Um, you know, every New York hardcore person I saw, even though they were like a character, they were that character for all time to me. I didn't think of them as getting older or being younger. They just were it and they gave themselves to it. And in some ways I kind of, modeled my approach to being a creative person around that sort of teenage mentality where I was just like, this is it. You give yourself to it. You're an open book. Um, you crack yourself open, you throw yourself in there and you're probably more honest in that than you are in other aspects of your life in some ways, because you're so sort of emotionally there in what you're putting out there into the world. Um, and I just know no different, you know, that's just what I feel comfortable with doing and, you know, approaching art and music. Um, yeah. So like starting as a kid, I didn't see it that now, like I don't see it that weird or that rare when I look at somebody like Harley who started way younger than me and was playing and doing his thing. Um, you know, I just thought that's the way it was, you know, you right. voice, it was empowering. It was this beautiful, raw nerve that you, that you had, that you could now do something with. Um, and I've done the same thing. Yeah. You know, you're one dimensional in life, you know, it's like far from it, but in terms of that pursuit, um, you know, I, I identified that as an incredibly important part of, of my being very early on i think i don't i've never psychologically unpacked it that much you know um but to me i just think that you're you're just always in search for a voice and then all of a sudden you're you know you're handed essentially either this 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 soapbox this platform this ability to get things out there into the world and have them reverberate and connect with people whereas in your everyday existence you're invisible um, it was a very powerful thing, you know? And so, um, yeah, it just, it became a really important part of my life. And also, you know, I, 
I didn't come come from a from a I don't want to call it normal family because there's no normal families. Everybody has their their dynamics and all the stuff that they've had to unpack. Um, but for whatever reason, that all of those ingredients that I had that made me a little adolescent me, um, I felt like they robbed me of a voice in some way, or at least I didn't have, I, I guess I wasn't heard, I wasn't seen, I, I don't know, you know, I don't really know, but um, I knew that I was those things and I was appreciated and I had friends and social circles and um, things that emotionally moved me within the punk rock scene and within the art community. And so those are the things that I gravitated towards and I still gravitate towards this person, you know, like now I'm older, I have my own family. I have that, that's a, a whole nother, a whole nother aspect of my life um, that I've built. Um, but I think there was a lot of things that were absent until I started making noise myself and making my own, you know, art and music. And then, you know, in turn family and, and friends later in life. Right. You know, you mentioned how, you know, you've always felt like you were a shy person and, and all of that. And, uh, I know that feeling of being a bit reserved. So I'm curious. So like when Converge started playing shows, um, did you discover things about yourself when you, when you started to perform, especially as like holding a microphone, yelling in, you know, in front of strangers? I never really unpacked it that much, to be honest. Um, I mean, it's, it's still, it's still something I'm not comfortable with doing, you know? Um, I don't, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable doing it, but I feel comfortable with, um, with having the platform, if that makes sense. Cause I don't think anyone gets, gets comfortable with having people stare at them and look at them eventually it just kind of becomes white noise and you just sort of ignore it um you know over repetition um but I never like I never like discovered like another a whole new me you know I was I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and in a lot of interviews of folks and you know I hear like stories of like somebody going into like acting class and they find themselves and they find their voice and it's like well that is fucking awesome good for you I'm still a fucking mess <laughs> um right so whatever you know like um but yeah i don't know i i'm really grateful for the opportunities that that the this punk rock and aggressive music world has given me um and you know with that said i just try to give everything i have to it you know um that's kind of that's kind of it when it when it comes to how how introspective i get with those sort of things i just i just don't think that way right no i get it um what do you remember what <clears throat> what the first uh converge show actually was i missed the first converge show technically okay well what was your first converge show <laughs> okay well it, um yeah I, I i believe i was in the hospital because i broke my knee and oh, so you're right, i was yeah. in the hospital for almost two weeks and we were going to play like a bunch of covers um i don't even know if converge was our name i think we went through like a handful of i we would like sit in um in like uh, the lunch, like the lunch room, Je Jeff, our old bass player, and, and myself, and, and like some friends, and we would like you know, throw around spitball names, and just couldn't come up with anything good. And I, I feel like 
Kurt might remember this. I, I don't. I think Converge was just like one of a thousand names that we were like, hey, that's not totally offensive. It's sort of like rudimentary hardcore. It kind of works for what we are. And in a sort of bigger metaphoric way, we're a convergence, a convergence of a bunch of things. Let's just stick with that. And we just took it. Like it wasn't like um, something that was like um, really, really special to us. It was just like, checkbox, done. Let's move right. on. Let's, right. start, let's start making the noise we want to make. Yeah. Uh, back then, you know, we were just going to, we had like a couple random songs that like I wrote and then later Kurt wrote and Jeff wrote. And we just tried to, we were just emulating the stuff that was around us, which was like, you know, every New York hardcore band, every like, like raw Boston hardcore band. Um, we, and I had a, at the time I was also, I was probably more of a metal guy than anything in terms of like listening habits and still am, you know, um, that's kind of always been where I lean. Um, and Kurt at the time too. So like there was a lot of interesting stuff happening back then when we were kids. And so we were, you know, just emulating all those bands. So that first show though, um, I think that's why Kurt joined the band was to basically play a solo that we couldn't play. It was like a suicidal tendency song or something. And he like, <laughs> He had a he had a PV Mantis guitar, which is like an incredible guitar. If you you want to image search that, okay, I'll look that up. Yeah, oh, they're great, uh, and they're uh, they're like they're just like the ultimate metal guitar. And okay. he would, he could rip with one of those. Um, and he was like a just kind of like a, a music nerd. That was his that was his deal. He was in band and played saxophone. Still does. We add saxophone on records because of that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of that you know, creative uh, partnership was was way back when. Uh, was it like a like a actually at a venue? Was it like at a house show? I think it was. I think that was at school. I think it was just like a bunch of bands playing together at school, and like then we yeah, all the bands we, kind of thing, maybe or it was something like that. Yeah, I think it was something like that. It's been a long time, so <laughs> I, mean, I, I can't remember most things. My brain's pretty shot at this point. Um, and in terms of like real shows and stuff, you know, we had a lot of local stuff happening at like places in the Merrimack Valley, like the Red Barn and stuff, which is just basically a, an old barn community center that there were shows at. That's where like a lot of the, the Merrimack Valley bands sort of got their, uh, got their first introduction to live music. You know, I know we played there, uh, I know like early incarnations of piebald and all their versions of bands i think even also may have played there in some version um at some point too um and you know a lot of a lot of the bands that were around at that time they all kind of would end up playing there sporadically got it got it um the first is the am i right to say that the first like actual like converge release is that self-titled seven inch because i saw i mean when you look at dates, like that's 1991. Um, yeah. So we, there was a, there was a demo before that, um, that we recorded, um, at the same place. And I think we did like, I don't know, maybe like 50 or hundred of those things, something like that. And that was recorded by Mike West, right? Yeah. And the reason why we went to that studio at the time was only living witness went there. 
and only living witness recorded the pro mortal form demo there and i believe it was there um and had some sort of that's how we knew about that place we're like this and it was just this pro studio in the basement of this guy's house in new hampshire and you know we went there and it was totally scary to do um but also like really exciting to do and these are recordings that were you know recorded and mixed in one day you know and we're not talking about going to the studio for weeks you know You're just yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like we're scraping all our money together and doing that and we and we would record four track demos and stuff all the time like i think i had a fostex and jeff maya had a fostex and i think Kurt might have one too and we would just kind of mess around and do stuff like that um so there was always versions of songs around and stuff um so there was that first demo that was an official demo that was actually like pro demo um I haven't seen many of those kicking around on the internet but that does exist I probably have one in a unofficial mail bin somewhere <laughs> in the you know because I, I I still have all my cassettes from when I was a kid Okay. Yeah. I was because, so, uh, yeah, I figured, you, you know, you guys had done some, some, uh, some of your own like demoing and stuff, but I was curious mm-hmm. um, when, it, when you guys went to that studio in New Hampshire, like, mm-hmm. and you were then, you know, singing into a microphone, quote unquote, professionally for the first time, like if you have, if you remember being terrified or were yeah, you excited. I, mean, I remember just like, like there were so many like sounds and things I wanted to do, but because of, I guess like the, ex- the the actual pressure of being on the clock and being a kid, I just kind of did what was easy. So I just did like this like gruff Paul Bearer voice, which is like this voice. It's like <laughs> a bit of deal time. And like I basically did that. Um and it worked, it, it worked for the time, you know, but it like it wasn't really what like even though I was into you know hardcore and punk rock and stuff like i wanted to be more extreme than that um and a little more a little more guttural and wild um but it was just like like back then like some of my favorite vocals were like blaine from the accused and like uh like rennie from stark weather is still the to me the greatest heavy vocalist of all time uh, and probably lyricist too um and so like that was the stuff that was really like you know that was that was the stuff that was getting me and like right. weird, weird metal stuff like Fear of God uh, and Diamante Gallus, like stuff that was fucking wild. That just was, you know, it was essentially death metal and performance art all kind of meeting in weird places. And it was just really powerful stuff. And I was like, I want to do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm a teenager, but that's the rage I feel inside. Yeah. You know? And so like, so that was, it took me a while to find my, my voice, right? And I think I had to just kind of like let go eventually and just kind of go, I'm just going to kind of go wild and have fun and see what happens and probably sing too hard a lot and things like that. And just kind of like rip your voice apart. You know, the deal, like you're just trying to find what works for yourself and what connects with you as a person. And as a band, you, you can see our, you can actually listen to our progression. Right. So like a lot of it is, stylistic choices a lot of it is actual maturation physical changes you know like you know you, you basically destroy your vocal cords over time and so you end up sounding different from record to record to record um 
you know, and develop polyps and lots of weird things like that. Um, yeah. Did you, did you ever have any like, like actual like vocal damage or anything like that? Or did you all the time? I, I bleed yeah. every time. To every, this day. To this day. Jesus, man. Yeah. I'm sure you haven't noticed that when we play, like when we played together, but yeah, I, it, it gets better um, after the first week or two of shows, but yeah, there's, it's usually a hot mess for a while. Damn. Yeah. I had no idea. That's uh, well, you can, you can seal it. Well, you can hear it, you know, like that's the thing. It's like, you know, the reason why I sound like a pterodactyl is because I'm pushing with all the air I possibly have in my body, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, there's a, probably a lot of reasons for that, you know, but I've done that for so long. It's like, like I can only, everyone has their own range, right. When they sing, right. but like I, there's definitely things I can't do anymore that I used to be able to do. And it's purely from damage. Um, and, uh, same with like, um, cool, let's just call it clean singing as they, they like to say on the internet. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, like there's only, there's only like a, like a certain sort of like register I can kind of hang in and stay totally controlled. And then, and then it's just like, it's just fucking comes off the rails. Right. I mean, in the early, especially in the early days, like I felt like you were hitting some like really wild notes, especially on like the petitioning era, you know, okay. and, and even I guess on Jane Doe a bit too. Yeah. Um, that was, sure the, yeah, those, those records are all like the first three record, three, three albums or whatever right. you want to call shit. Um, yeah, they all, they're all similar like that. Um, and I think you fail me would have been like that too. Um, but I was sick when we recorded that. Mm. So I, I had like a handful of days to record and I knew we were like down to the wire, uh, with our deadline and stuff. And so we just kind of, and I, I remember we had like all these problems where like the power on the block was going out and we were just like losing time and material and it was like a fucking hot mess so just i just did what i had to do you know box checked done right you know? um and you know that's part of the artistry but you know what i mean like you can't uh you can't exhaust yourself over these like little little details that you know probably only i hear you know right or, you know just doesn't really matter to me um talk to me about uh the first label that put out because i think that the first label you would have worked with was was the label that did that seven inch was like foundation america or something like that was that just like a pal that was, was that was that was me and this guy george oh so that was like your first you just created a label was that the only thing you put out or was there another release we were gonna do a few things um back then back, we were we were kids and i worked in a nursing home and was just saving my money uh, working in a nursing home kitchen and was like, all right, well, you just, you're, you just put out your own records. And yeah. That's what it is. It's funny. I, I, I told a little story on the internet the other day about this. Cause um, somebody was like, why don't you, someone's trying to be actual smart ass, you know, which is most of the internet. Uh, and they just said something like, you should reissue that, you know, you should repress these other records you can buy wherever on discogs and shit. It's like, okay, well, cool, cool story. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I, I, I actually answered with a, with a factual thing where when we did that record, you know, we, I was a kid, I was a child, you know, and we, um, we sent about 500 copies or something 
to Dutch East India Trading, uh, distribution and manufacturing company at the time in New York. I think it was in New York. It might have been in Chicago. Can't remember. Anyway, uh, they they offered to take them on consignment and then never paid for them and never responded to any phone calls or a couple of letters I sent back then, which was like totally heartbreaking as a kid because you know that was like you know it was months of of you know earnings and right like you know in in a in a really shit job as a teenager you know one of your first jobs ever I was like 16 or something or 15 probably trying to pay for that thing it was crazy oh my god um, and um yeah that was just that was it I remember we didn't even have poly bags for that we couldn't afford them so I remember our drummer at the time his father had a manufacturing facility of some kind and that he had access to in Lawrence Mass and we had he had bags that were kind of seven inch sized and so interesting fuck it let's throw them in that's what we did um so that's that's where that record came from george was in a couple bands later um he was in a band called coleman i don't know if you're familiar with Mm -mm. don't know them i bet if you look in your record collection there might be a record in there um and i i want to say that there was like a suppression coleman split or something like that okay um but yeah, George disappeared for a while. He he passed away a couple of years ago. I, I saw him uh, a few years before he passed away. But yeah, he was like a mainstay of this sort of Boston hardcore world for a long time. And then when, because we were two kids that had no idea what we were doing. And then we met this guy, Mike, who at the time was a great talker and really charismatic individual and was doing shows and was just kind of like a, a mover and shaker, you know, it was exciting to be around him. He was like an interesting guy at the time. He's out there somewhere working in movies. I've, um, I've had people mention his name to me semi-recently and be like, Oh yeah, he was talking. Um, he's like, I don't know if he's a grip or a cameraman. I don't know what his deal is. He's out there somewhere. Anyway, he put out, he had a label called exchange records that he started and he was doing some shows here and there. And he put out an overcast seven inch, the second overcast seven inch and he put out a knockdown seven inch which was trace band. band yeah i think that's the way it works yeah and um so that's kind of like how our worlds all started coming together through this universe we all started we we're young and meeting each other through shows or whatever and uh he he eventually bailed and left town um and he actually ended up either selling or giving the rights to hit the rights to his records, which he didn't pay for any of them. You know, <laughs> it was the bands paying for them and then putting, you know, trying to put them out, but none of us knew any better and knew how it worked. Right. To another guy. And that guy put out a couple comps in random seven inches. You probably have seen the Boston is burning seven inch, which has like, right. Like dive and overcast and converge on it. None of us knew about that record. That was, that literally we saw it. I, I saw that record in Tang Records for sale. That's how I knew that no record. No way. Oh yeah. And I remember um, I just moved to Boston at that time. So we're, we're now fast forwarding, I think around 93, 1994. And I remember, um, I, re- I remember either calling him or getting in contact with him and being like, yo, like you can't, like I know the like the record's garbage for kids, but like you don't you can't we you can't just like not compensate or talk to any of us about <laughs> stuff. Right. 
and he threatened to shoot me to shit. <laughs> I was like, cool. All right. And I remember I lived with my, my buddy, Scott Wade, who now lives out. And, and there you go. You got it. Perfect. Yeah. I was like right next to my comp seven inches. I was like, I feel like I have that. Yeah. It made wow. rounds. He was good at, at, at getting records out there for whatever reason. It got the fuck out there. Um, but yeah, so he put, just assembled that on his own. We had nothing to do with that and, and no knowledge of it. So that guy was around for a little while. He was weird, um, threatened to shoot me, then kind of, we thought he disappeared off the face of the earth. Aaron Turner and I went to, a, uh, went to go see Grave play in 1990. I think it was like, maybe like 95, 96. Yeah. Grave were playing the rat. And we were like, he's like, hey, let's go see Grave. And I was like, yes, let's go see Grave. I fucking love Grave. We went and so we, walk, we walked in and at the bar, the dude was sitting at the bar and he had a screwdriver shirt on. Oh, no. And I was like, this is just not going to go well at all. He's like, what should we do? And I'm like, just fucking watch a show, whatever. He's like, yeah. And we didn't talk to him. We were just like, because I was like, I was like, what am I? I saw that, you know, I was just like, this is just not going to end well. Right. And clearly he saw me there, you know, he didn't say anything or do that. I was just like, whatever, fine. I'm like, there's no money to be had. It wasn't like a financial thing. It was just a sort of like acknowledgement of. This shitty situation. Our shit, man. Yeah. So that was, yeah. So he did that. Um, whatever. I, so I put out that for, I put out that first one uh, with a few people. The second, the, the first proper Converge album, which was the Halo and a Haystack record, which right. I've seen, I put that out as well um, with um, my my friend at the time. And he he had a record called Stone, he had a record label called Stone Neck Records that he started. And I started the Earthmaker imprint at the time. And I was like, at the time I was like writing a lot and I was writing a lot of prose. And at the time everyone was putting out like random zines and things and I was doing the same thing. And so I used that name to, to do, to do that record uh, with him. Uh, we paid for the first press and I took that first press on tour and um, with Deltonic actually, uh, which you probably have a Deltonic record out there. So they're, I think they're on this comp. They are on that comp. Yeah. So, uh, um, so when when Deltonic did their first proper U.S. tour, uh, Converge played a couple shows down to D.C. with uh, with Deltonic, and I stayed on. I was their roadie for the rest of the tour and just sold stuff. And we're not talking about like this is this is a fun tour because this is like every after every night it was like whose turn is it going to be to pay for gas because we weren't actually making enough money to even pay for gas right so to do the old tour it was basically like every couple days what whoever was driving was basically on the hook to pay for gas that day oh my god that's how we did that tour and i was making money by selling my personal record collection and the converge records that i brought on that tour and that was in 1994 Okay, I was gonna ask. Yeah, that was that was gonna end up being one of the questions, like what the first tour was. So that was so that, that would have been it. Summer nineteen ninety four. Um, yeah, because Scott and I were Scott from Deltonic, the vocalist, and I were hanging out a lot. And basically, like every weekend, we would just get in his van with friends and stay random places and go to random shows. And that was the van that we did most of that tour in. And that van blew up in Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it blew up in Las Vegas. 
and I remember the I remember the loft in that van was actually it was actually built by myself and Scott in my driveway out of pieces of a mini ramp that I attempted to build in my backyard. <laughs> and so it was all it, like in that I built that in like 1990 or something. So we're talking about, you know, like soggy, saturated worm and termite filled wood. Right. And then just like cut <laughs> up and built into this van. And that was the loft. And then we just were like, fuck yeah, look at this thing. This thing rules. Yeah. I remember going on that tour and like just like packing a fucking bag. And I brought a uh and I brought also brought a, a cooler of uh canned food. I brought canned corn and canned beans and uh canned peas, and that's what I lived on for that tour. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, so you said you stayed on for it. Like how long did it end up being so, in actuality? Like two weeks, three weeks? Oh, no, it was like a month. They, wow. they actually we got to the West Coast. Uh, we actually met up with, with a veil. That's how I, that's how I know a veil. Oh, folks. wow. That's how I met um, like the, all those guys, like, uh, like Tim and stuff back then and Bo. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically taught, they weren't intentionally teaching us, but they taught me about touring, you know, like I, they were driving their cool little van that they drove everywhere. Um, I think they even drove on the first warp tour. And they were, they were, uh, you know, they were printing shirts. Uh, they brought screens or printing shirts on the road out of the back of their van. Wow. Just like, it was, it was awesome. And it was really enlightening and it was really inspiring to be around them, especially like right as the, um, the, the spark of that band was kind of kicking and they found their sound and they were driven and determined to be out there. And they were just really a special thing in punk rock. And and Deltonic got to play some shows with them, so I got to see all that stuff. That was pretty cool. That's like um, that tour. Remember, we were in San Diego. That's where I met Justin Pearson on that tour. Yeah, I met um, because Deltonic played with Swing Kids at the. I was going to ask if it was Swing Kids or like or Struggle or something. It was a Swing Kids. Swing Kids, and I think it was this at the Shea. Yeah. Um, it might've been a different venue, but yeah, that's when I met them. And he had like a spa haircut at the time and stuff. <laughs> totally wild. But it was like, it was really like, un- it was just really blowing my mind to be out that far. I went to Epitaph Records for the first time in 1994 with Scott. Scott actually was a, uh, and Deltonic. They, um, he was a roadie for a lot of bands. Okay. He's like, um, he's like a U.S. bombs guy. And so, he he used to roadie for rancid and down by law and i remember going even this is i think we were just got to la or la area or whatever and we had like no place to stay and he reached out to dave smalley at the time and said hey dave like my band's coming through um can we stay there and he said sure so we went to his apartment in like the middle of night in the dark i just laid on the ground no blankets or anything just like went to sleep laying there on the ground yeah and i woke up and i remember like it probably wasn't that big but to me it was really big was the painting from the cover of the first don by law record was in his living room and i woke up basically under it and like it really just blew my mind because it was like really connecting all these dots and stuff yeah and we spent the day with with dave smalley and some of the down by law people because they were getting ready for a tour and we uh they were rehearsing at a studio out there um i want to see it was like capital studios or something okay it was a it was a live some sort of like live and recording kind of deal and we went there to like get a guitar or something i don't know 
and I could have sworn, I remember, I have to ask Scott if this was, if, if this is who it was, but I'm almost positive we saw Chuck Billy in, uh, in Testament in a room, like doing something through a window. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. It could have just been a random heavy metal guy, but to <laughs> me, like it was, I was like living the dream, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was your first time. It was that your first time in California ever? Ever, yeah, yeah. And, uh, to, um, I went to Epitaph, and at the yeah. time, Epitaph was just a um, it was basically a big garage bay, and it opened up, and I saw these punk rock people driving a fucking forklift, loading fucking records, and uh, and I think it was probably at the time it was probably Offspring Records or something. Sure, and it was like it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, as individuals, we can operate at this level and not have to conform to the rest of society and be a counterculture that can also, you know, be run parallel at the same time and have just as much respect and just as much sort of reach into the world. Pretty fucking cool. Yeah. That was, um, that blew my mind, you know, and that was like a really big deal to me. Um, and I was probably riding that high for the last couple of weeks of that tour. But so that van blew up that we were on that tour in, in Las Vegas. They thought it'd be funny to leave uh, leave some of us in the van while they um, sleeping while they had it towed. Yeah, had it towed and stuff. I think I I think we woke up like in the like in a garage bay or something while they as they were on a lift. It was fucking ridiculous. But you know, remember, you can imagine these drivers. They're like sitting there. There's a we're only we're kids. We're all under like I think most of us were like under 20 or yeah. under 18. Like and yeah. it's what the fuck? You know right. Like, what is happening right now? How did you end up getting home? Uh, so we got a U-Haul. Okay. And we spent the rest of the tour in a U-Haul that no no one ever drove like so like Keep in mind, I paid for gas. I actually didn't drive. So if it was my time, because I didn't have a driver's license. Sure. So I would just pay to for gas or whatever. But the people who did drive on that tour were like, you know, like driving a vehicle that was 10 times the size of anything they've ever driven. <laughs> yeah. So we were, we were like hitting shit constantly. <laughs> it was a fun. And remind you, it, we were all in the back of a U-Haul. So, what so dangerous. Yeah. So so every time that everything every stopped or started that everything slid forward or backwards, it was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, man. That's and, I was gonna say. Yeah, you probably didn't like like uh, block off the gear from being able to slide towards you. So now that's terrifying. We didn't have, we didn't have the ability. To, yeah, of course we, not. We didn't have the money. Like yeah. it was just like you know it was just a fucking fiasco. So when we got back, I think that band kind of went on hiatus when we got back for a while and, um, Converge started playing again, um, for a couple months. And I actually, we thought that Converge was going to stop in around that time too. Um, when I think it was like the summer before and that summer, we were like, we we're like, I don't know, is this going to be our last show? Cause we we're all going to college. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we quickly figured out that we could be a band in some capacity and still go to college, you know, but when your brain is this small and you're just trying to figure out and your world is this small, you don't know. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if we'd ever talked about that before, but I was curious how you balanced. Um, Cause yeah, you went to the art Institute of Boston um, where you got like a bachelor's in, in fine art. And um, I was curious, like how you were balancing um, basically. Yeah. Like, cause that would have been the same time that uh, was that what a, been like when forever comes crashing era kind of 
before that? Okay. Yeah, we, yeah. So it was before that and, and leading up to that. I think I graduated, I graduated from college after One Forever came out because I designed, okay. I designed that machine on the AIB computers because I didn't have my own computer at the time. Okay. So I would do, I would do that like after class and stuff. Um, all that stuff together. So uh, you can tell me if Wikipedia is wrong again, because this is something else that was was in there that I don't know if I knew that it said you taught for a minute. Is that true? Yeah, I taught for a minute. After didn't know school, that. Yeah. So I after I after I finished school, I was initially I was going I was I thought I was going to be a junior a junior designer at a um, I guess we're, we're leaping forward a little bit, but it's OK. Yeah. Like I thought I was going to be a junior designer at a firm that I was interning at. And we went on tour um, and I was basically going to come back and have a full-time job. And then when I came back, I found out that they basically restructured when I was gone. And everybody that was a full-time designer was now brought in as a contract worker. And this was happening kind of everywhere at the time in the design and art world. If anybody was working in-house, typically they just became a freelancer, you know? So um, that's, that was happening in that whole industry at the time. So I came back and I was like, okay, cool. I don't have a job. I don't have my, my I, I was working in a furniture store as well. And I already let go of that job. So I was like, cool. What am I going to do now? I, you know, rent wasn't that much, but I had to, you know, make things work. And I was already designing for, for bands and stuff at the time. I think like I designed like the early cave in records and a bunch of early Hydra head stuff while I was still, uh, in school, because um, Aaron went to a different school, but we were friends and kind of you know, pooling our resources and stuff. Um, and um, yeah, like I came back and just started doing freelance design work. And then my school reached out and said, hey, would you like to possibly teach in some capacity? And I was a kid. I was like 21, 22, something like that. And I said, sure, you know, I can instruct something. And so they gave me a gig uh, doing uh, what they call at the time continuing education. So basically it was like high school kids or people who wanted to get into the design and illustration world. Um, and they were kind of had the feelers out there. So they were doing like weekend classes and stuff. And so I taught, I, like I taught on Saturdays and it was funny. I had a couple hardcore kids in there at the time and people knew who I was from that world by then. And so I was like, <laughs> it's not like a weird thing but it's still yeah keep keep it moderately professional looking like this if you can you know um but yeah so i, I taught continuing that I, I taught that um that like introduction to like practical design and illustration for you know for a little while um, and obviously that i mean like they're they're very different but they're they do share similarities with you know again being front and center you know getting yeah. everyone's attention doing the thing did uh was that something that was like kind of hard to 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 step into or did you find your rhythm with it or was it uh what found, do you remember I, from that i found a rhythm pretty pretty quickly because i was just coming out of college and so i knew how it worked you know so i still understood you know basic curriculum and stuff and how how i needed to approach these things and like you know what would be the good the good intro to the class will be a good large project towards the end stuff like that um that was that was pretty natural. Um, it was weird though. Cause you know, at the time I was still like, you know, I'm a kid and like still dirt poor, like barely 
barely squeaking by with anything, you know, like, and I was designing a lot of records at the time and I had a lot of clients that weren't paying. And so it was like, or paying very little, you know, um, and that was hard, you know, so that was really hard. Um, and it's, I mean, it's hard to this day, but back then it was like, you're talking like, I guess I'm not going grocery shopping this week, you know? Yeah. Um, and that was like, that was the reality for a long, long time, you know, oh. that, that grind. At what point did you become kind of like, I'm sure between you and Aaron Turner, you were, you know, probably a lot of crossover clients and stuff like that. But like, at what point did you become sort of like the go-to guy for album artwork? I like, I just assume you became, you know, it's like when your friend has a pickup truck, it's like, oh man, we got, we got to get, we got to lay the seven inch out. We just yeah, go hit up sure. Jake. Yeah. yeah. We were, we were basically the guys with pickup trucks and bands, but it was art and it, it was yeah. us, but there was also people like John LaCroix who's been out there in the West coast forever. He was doing a lot of design work and he was, his trajectory at the time was real similar to mine. You know, we had a lot of parallels and he was doing a lot of design work for folks more in like the straight hardcore world um, than like what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, people were coming to all of us all the time. At, like, I was designing like band shirts in high school, you know? Um, I remember doing, I remember like doing like photo stats in high school for band shirts and shit. Um, I remember doing like in college, doing like the cave in, the cave in logos with Letraset, you know? Like um, that's why it looks so weird. Yeah. You, know, you can't make that digitally, you know? Um, right. You know, stuff like that. So we were doing it really early. Um, and as you said, that was a, good, that was a good analogy. You know, we were basically the guys with the pickup truck that will move your mattress. Right, exactly. So there was a lot of that. And also like Aaron wasn't, a, wasn't he was a fine art guy. And so he, I actually, his first computer was my old computer, which was like, I finally saved up to buy a, to buy a Performa, an Apple Performa, something or other. And um, I remember like having that for like a hot minute and he needed a computer to do design work. And I think I sold it to him at some point. So like we were all, it was all cross pollinating in like a, a, a ton, ton of ways um, back then. But yeah, like we were, I was doing that probably, I guess it would have been like 94, 95, like uh, for other, other people too. It was like, it was really scary, but you know, learning on the fly, you know? And yeah. this is I'm like too, where like, you know, you didn't have like CD burners, you know, like you were working with jazz drives and zip drives. And if I needed to output like a large file and I'm, by large, I mean like over a hundred megs, right. I would actually have to take my computer. Like, um, this is like my, I remember my senior year. Cause I had that computer senior year. Um, and I would have to take it to service bureaus on the, on the train and bring it to a service bureau and they plug in their SCSI and, and print the file from the machine because there was no possible way to get it off the machine. Oh my God. That was affordable. Yeah. At least to me. So that's how you did it. Um, yeah, it was fucking crazy. And Aaron was more of a fine art guy at the time too. So he was doing like painting and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's a fucking wild world, man. Yeah. So with all that, like on your plate, uh, you know, what, what was the conversation with Trey to decide to start doing Deathwish in like what, 2000? Cause that would have been pretty shortly after all of that then. It was before then. So I, I was, I was taking records basically from as soon as I got out of college in what, like 1998 or whatever, I was 
essentially a freelance artist, okay, um, or a freelance designer. And just like I was learning, learning on the job, so wasn't every single person that was trying to put out records and stuff. But I actually had more experience than most of the people that were coming to me to design records because I was putting out records since I was a kid. I might have been getting ripped off, but I had experience, you know, and I knew, I knew that experience to, getting ripped off. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew how to get my, uh, like a record to replication. I knew, right. you know, I knew which, who you needed to speak to and how to make that work and connect those dots. And I also knew new distributors as well and other record labels and things, you know, like the community was slowly forming. Um, so people were coming to me and saying like, Hey, I have this record. And sometimes they'd send me the audio too, and I'd be submitting everything. And so I'd be like, well, what am I doing now? I'm basically running other record labels in the sense that I'm doing the responsibilities of the label. I'm essentially organizing that and I'm taking a job from point A to point Z or pretty close to that to delivering as like a, you know, an early twenties kid. I was like, I should just do a fucking label again you know, and like really do it. Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we were still like dirt poor because as I said, uh, there was no money in any of this stuff. And the money that there was, it was like, you know, trying to get blood from a stone in terms of trying to get paid for jobs. Uh, it was like some of the biggest records I did in the, the, in the late nineties and stuff, I didn't get paid for it for like six, eight months. And when I got paid, it was like 300 bucks or 200 right. bucks at the time. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like crazy inflation where that, that was like a million dollars. No, it was still two or 300 bucks. It's still, yeah. had, you know, like uh, it was, it was still a rough go anyway. Yeah. I think, I think, um, uh, I think I'd heard or from you or, or uh, Nick worked on the, uh, the uh, reissue of opposite of December. Uh, and like, yeah, I think like, either you told me or whatever is like that was like a two or three hundred dollar thing 300, and 300 and i think it was 325 dollars or 300 dollars <laughs> and I, that and i did that job for uh for good no for trust kill no it wasn't trust kill it was before oh, trust kill. uh the european label good fight uh, or good good life good life good life good life yes yeah so i did a couple records for good life at the time and I did that for Good Life. And, and as I was designing that record, um, for whatever reason, the Good Life and Trustkill partnered with each other. And Trey basically became a Trustkill record. So I think I did two versions of that with different logos and stuff. And um, yeah, I think it took like six months, um, <laughs> six months or more to get paid. I remember being at that first, that the infamous Hellfest that was like a complete shit show. Yeah. Um, that people think is a triumphant thing, but it was a fucking disaster. <laughs> um, that I remember being there and still having conversations with Josh at the time about like, yo, who's going to pay me for this fucking thing? You know what I mean? Like you guys have like, you know, like shipped 30,000 CDs. Right. No one's fucking taking care of the like one of the people that are help creating this thing with everybody. It's like, it sucks, you know? Right. And it is what it is, you know, yeah. stuff, stuff gets lost over time. Like people think that somebody else is going to take care of something or whatever. It is what it is. We were all kids and everybody's a, 
at that especially at that point in time just didn't you know didn't really know what they were doing probably didn't even have it to begin with yeah you know um so it is what it is a lot of those early records i worked on had stories like that um, but i also had some really good clients that were pretty awesome at the time like uh the undecided guy cliff was always really good to me and i did a lot of his stuff for him um i remember uh, uh john dudek at edison and uh and very distribution before he passed away. He was a really good client. I did a lot of his stuff for him, like the Sistral record and a bunch of other junk. Um, that was, yeah, I, it, it meant a lot that people were trusting me with their their art at the time. So that that's basically when I started doing a, a quite a large amount of design work. Here's a kind of a fun question is, uh, obviously a lot of the bands that you were doing were either bands that were contemporaries, bands you're friends with, probably a lot of bands you're friends with, what was the first design job for like an out for a band that you got that was like something that you were like a fan of like holy shit I get to do this record? There was a bunch. There was a there was a bunch of them. Um, I mean, even watching like a like even watching like a band like Poison the Well that I might, I wasn't like musically a fan of, but just to see them grow as a band was really was really impressive to see like to see them working with these major labels that are acknowledging the existence of them, you know, um, and artistically like growing at this in, in parallel with a lot of these artists, you know, like all the, like many of the Hydra head records and those bands that I worked, I worked with, um, were just like lead to this client or that client. And it just became, I don't know, it just, it became big, I guess. Yeah. Fine. Is that like pretty, pretty quickly i remember doing like early sepultura record you know and i was like i was probably like 25 you know doing it out of my basement um doing a lot of early work with Derek hess and, and marty who um who manages Derek, um doing a lot of his stuff especially his early um digital stuff because they weren't really set up for that so he would send me things to scan and put together so a lot of a lot of stuff i did that way for him that's actually a good transition because uh, your was your first art show in 2004 in Cleveland, the, which looked like it was like a Derek Hess thing, like the stress festival. I definitely did stuff before then. You know, okay. School and stuff like that. Yeah. But really quickly, when I was a, when I was in art school, I became a designer really fast because the way I saw it was that the, graphic design world was basically fine art with a brain you know you were trying to solve problems and create create multi-layered packaging experiences and stuff like that and really developing um, the character of something and I found that to be exciting challenging and as a fan of music and all things visual that was really um, that was a really magnetic thing for me like I really was attracted to that uh, and it also encompassed all those things, you know, so photography, illustration, real true fine art, just typography, everything. So I just kind of immersed myself in that world and didn't really do too much fine art after, probably after like my junior year until I got out of school, you know, I was mainly in this mode of designing stuff. Like I would, I would create records and do artwork for records. Um, but I wasn't like um, sitting there making art to make art anymore. It was all client-based. And still to this day, I very rarely make something that's just for me. Usually it's rooted in some sort of existing project or attached to some sort of aspect of things. Um, 
but yeah, back then that's like when I really became a designer and um, I probably didn't do any more fine art after that for a while. And then uh, that Derek show that you mentioned, uh, I believe that was a festival that um, they put together with a bunch of bands and we played it and they had like a, uh, at a gallery setting as well as part of it. And I believe it was the same, same location as the, um, remember the back of the integrity humanity is the devil 10 inch. And you okay. see the Melnick is jumping with Dwid and they're all jumping like in unison with the bridge behind them. That's, that's where it was. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was there. And um, yeah, they basically had a bunch of our stuff there and, and Marty and Derek were really encouraging. They're like, because I was doing design work for them, but, but they were just like, you know, you you are a great artist. And I know you get stuck in the hamster wheel of doing design work all the time, but you should not, I'm not saying pursue it because it's already there, but you should just explore that part of things more. And I'd be like, yeah, I can, except I got to, you know, pay for the roof over my head, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it took some time to get those things kind of aligned and a lot of, you know, a lot of encouragement by a lot of people um, to try to make that happen over time. And, you know, and, and I, and I did, and I, you know, still do. So now more so people come to me to not necessarily do constructive design work. I'm just basically building a basic thing. Usually there's some sort of fine art aspect of those things now that, I, that I'm also attaching to that. Like, for example, today you, you hit me up when I was, and you were like, Hey, are you ready? I'm like, I'm trying to finish this client thing. Give me a few yeah. minutes. I was doing like a Gojira merch for them. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, like, and that's kind of the way it works. I'm like kind of wearing both hats as a designer and you know, artist in, in that regard. It's a lot. Right. Of awesome. Um, well, shit, man, I could hit you with the, with the last question. Um, questions. I, I could talk about this shit forever. I mean, we've only, we only got to really like, I mean, I love the fact, by the way, that we didn't even get to the Jane record or anything after that. We just kind of talked about the, 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 I, I know that that's, that's your deal with this podcast. Yeah. I love that, that we're kind of, we're kind of spinning along that stuff. Cause there's so many little, little details that I, I kind of find to be interesting. Yeah, actually, that when the when this whole world of creative folks, at least this current generation, were all in like the primordial ooze, you know, we weren't really fully formed, you know. And the one thing I can say with all of this stuff is like, there's so many of us that are still connected and still friends and are still relevant and doing things that are just as interesting as they were in you know 1998 or whatever. Um, and I feel really fortunate that I've given a lot of my sort of professional effort and sort of psychological time to a community that's been so pure and so interesting. And it kind of got built from the ground up, um, you know, over the years, you know, because I don't think that there's any other world that has that, you know, people age out, people, whatever, they don't really progress with those things. And so it's really, I think it's really special that in our music world, a lot of us have been able to evolve within it. And, you know, even you yourself, you know, like you, you're, I remember meeting you when you were a kid. You, you were literally the first person I ever interviewed. Yeah. You were, Very, you, you were a kid in interviewing folks. And I think it, I, you might, I, I think you were just like playing guitar in a band maybe. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And that was like, that was pretty much your deal. And I think it's, um, 
I think it's just really special that all of us can progress within this world and um, still remain uh, interesting and relevant and have something to say. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the fun thing about doing this, this, this show in particular is what I didn't go into it expecting is a lot of the feedback I get is so many people being really inspired by it being, you know, like I think hearing those humble beginnings from every kind of different artist, you know, whether a photographer, singer in a band, whatever tattoo artist, it's like, you know, I think that we live in such a world where things seem like it's so much instant gratification where it's like, Hey, I, I want to be an artist. And now they're famous. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, there's a lot of gnarly steps between here and there. And it's nice to kind of be remembered of those things. Well, it's also, it, it's about the steps. It's about the process. It's not, totally. about, you know, like, I think that's one of the things that gets lost by many people who, who are, who ask the questions like, what do you have? What, what kind of advice do you have for me as a, as a younger creative person who's trying to do thing A or B or C? It's like, just do what you love, put your head down and do it. And like, and if that means like actually eating shit for a long time, that's what you do, you know, because you should be just as fulfilled doing that. You might be starving. You might be like have self-imposed hardship where you could, you know, take another avenue in life and, and, you know, have some creature comforts, but if you truly love it, you will give yourself to it. And that's, um, that's not an easy road and it's longer for others than some, and some may never reach their destination and some may get off on the first exit and fucking quit. You don't know, but like the only, like it's, it's about that process and loving it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I mean, obviously we, we, we only, we're only talking the the early stuff, but uh, I don't plan on stopping this podcast anytime soon. So uh, if you want to come back down the line we can, we can explore further. I would love to have you back. Sure. Um, you, you can consider this like chapter, chapter, know, chapter, like one through whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If I, if I actually was, <laughs> if I actually could find the time, I'd actually finish writing this stuff down. I started that once. Um, you know, but like, here's the thing, when, when you start documenting those things, I feel like they always have like a, they end at the wrong time. Mm. You know, I feel like yeah. people start those things. Like if there'd be an, it would be really incredible if we could somehow write our stories when we're dead, you know, when we got yeah. to the point where, you know, Hey, that's the actual end of the line, the end of the book, yeah. you know? Um, you know, by, by your own hand. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting details and a lot of interesting characters. And I'm fortunate to have known many of them and I've had some really cool experiences with people, even, even the folks that like, you know, like haven't, like I haven't had like the best relationships with over time, you know, like I'm just, I'm really grateful of the opportunities that a lot of the folks have given me, you know, like I know like, uh, like Convergent EVR, like never have seen eye to eye since essentially we left the label in 2001. But like, I'll always be grateful for the opportunities that they gave us. You know what I mean? Um, and it just is what it is. Like, yeah. um, and I just, I'm just really, um, I don't know, I just feel really fortunate to have the life I have. So. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask, when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards, whether it's music or art, or you want to answer for both? Mm, that's a, a time. I don't know if there's really a time that, um, 
I don't know, maybe when maybe when death wish st- stepped out of my basement of my apartment at the time which we were squatting because i actually wasn't paying for it we, i i we 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 took the lock off of this door and we're like whoa there's a whole apartment down here <laughs> that, that they can't rent because it didn't have a, a legal egress okay so it's like well it looks pretty dry down here i think i'm gonna just stick my shit down here and that's how we ran death wish for you know a number of years was out of there and like as soon as we stepped out of that and started paying to house our business someplace that's when i feel like i was like oh shit's real i'm adulting right now yeah when did you when did you because there were first you did it at like yeah like basement like apartments and stuff like that and then it was because you guys were already in that spot when Touche started working with you guys. So was it like just before then, maybe like 2009 or something, 2008, when you moved into the spot you're in now? We moved into this spot in 2007 or eight, I think seven. Um, Because I remember making, it might've been 2000, I don't know, maybe 2008, maybe 2009. I'm not sure exactly when. I remember the, I remember No Heroes, which came out in 2007, is that right? 2008 i don't even remember no um, yeah i think it's two, yeah 2007 i think yeah 2007 so i remember making the art for that record at our previous location okay but i remember hacking those records here okay um, nice i it's fun when we were when we were still kind of figuring out where we were gonna where we were gonna land um if i was gonna base our where we ended up with you guys based on uh, who had the coolest office. I think you guys definitely won where it was like, we, we went to EVR, went to bridge nine saw, and then I was hanging with you guys at death. And I was like, okay, I think, I think they got the cooler office. Our, our shared spot with bridge nine was pretty cool that we had. That was like so you guys in big wheel recreation was there too. No, we, right? there was a, no that was, that was before us. So they, oh, okay. they had a, they had a space called Inatech that they, they called it Inatech that actually had Hydra head upstairs and then big wheel like Rama and big wheel and bridge nine on like this lower level of it, like the basement level. And it was, it was cool. It was like the first like, com- like communal kind of shared punk business thing that I've yeah. been around here. And I thought that was really special. And then they, they left that space for whatever reason and asked if we would step out and out of my basement essentially. And we said, sure, let's give it a try. So we did that. And we had that space for, I think, like three or four years. It was a long time. And it was a cool, it, it was a cool space. And it was like, yeah, and that's where, um, that's where Liberated Images started, um, which is ran by, you know, Kevin from uh, APMD and HopeCon and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and, you know, Chris was there, like our desks were basically next to each other for years. Um, but just like anything else, it's like you get, when you have roommates, you're always tripping over each other. You need your own right. space, you know, it just got, they both were getting, we were both growing simultaneously and it was just becoming a shit show in terms of that. So we took this building, yeah, way, way back when, but yeah, so we've been here for a long time. Yeah. But we, don't have, we don't have signs outside or anything like that. Most people don't know we're here, which is wonderful. I've, yeah. I and you guys it. have really taken over that building because, yeah, I mean, it was just the one floor for a while. Now, you know, it's well, 
A few. Too, we well, we we have the yeah, we have an ad, like a storage attic, and we yeah. have this current floor. We had the second floor too, but there was no reason for it, so we got rid of that. Oh, okay. I'm you know I, I'm in a bit of a shoebox in here. Um, probably your room in there is probably bigger than what I have here. Yeah, if it's, if you're in this, I think you're in the same office that you were you've always been in, right? Yeah, um, it was a little self-imposed though. You could you could spread your wings if you wanted to, but I, I can't think now. No, Trey, Trey's office is next next to me. Okay, um, it, these are basically eleven by eleven boxes. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's pretty full. I mean, that, that's also one of the things when it comes to artwork. Like, I don't have that much space, and so if I have to do something, um, everything gets put away. Like, for example, I'm um, I have like going on over here like a giant drying rack um for a bunch of you know wet art i have a table back here that i attribute the paints or whatever yeah but when i do that everything has to get basically shut down and covers put over it and then you know go nuts for a while and kill my brain cells right um, but i'm cool, you know i'm cool with that i'd like to have a bigger space eventually to do that sort of thing um eh, maybe one day we'll see yeah you got it Cool, man. Well, thanks for thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you working through the tech diffs. Uh, hopefully, this works out for you. We have the, uh, the other thing going on too. Yeah, it'll be it'll be okay. Appreciate it. All right, Jeremy. Be good. And that's our show. Thank you so much to Jake for hanging out, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this and you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Do it on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. And don't forget, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. If you want just some overall great fun content and bonus episodes, like I mentioned. All right. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.